Hi listeners, it's Lucy. Please don't scroll ahead. This is a very quick message, I promise, to ask a very easy favour. At the end of each episode, as the credits roll, you'll hear a request from us to rate and review the show. Now, for those of you that are awesome podcast listeners rather than podcast makers, you might actually have no idea what a huge difference those things make. A significant factor in the visibility of a podcast on almost all listening platforms is down to the number and quality of ratings and subscriptions. So, if you are one of our dedicated listeners, hi, I know some of you as far away as Australia, so thanks. If you're currently not driving your car or changing a baby's nappy, can you please just look down at your phone right now as I'm talking and hit subscribe and five-star rating? Both of them are on the homepage of the show and they are both only a one-click job. But oh my God, what a lot of joy and gratitude I would feel at those one clicks. It makes such a difference to the show's potential to keep going. Now, enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Hi, Lucy Eaton here, host of Hear Me Out. We've had lots of requests from our amazing listeners asking how they can support the show. So before we invite today's special guest on, I wanted to let you know that we are officially now on Patreon. This means that you can invest in the channel monthly, and in return you get all kinds of perks from bonus footage to having your own questions put to our starry guests. Just head to our page on patreon.com slash podhearmeout. We've popped the link in the show notes below, and we would love to have you join the family. You're about to hear a brief conversation with an incredible actor. Part autobiographical journey, part literary analysis and part late night chat in the theatre bar, this is Hear Me Out and I'm your host, Lucy Eaton. Please welcome to the stage, Maddie Hill. I'm usually the Zoom master. (laughs) (laughs) It's always me dishing out the Zooms. You usually send the Zoom invites? Yeah. Mm, Yeah. You don't type in the the meeting ID? Nope. (laughs) What beverage have you got? Is that Coca-Cola or red wine? It's actually Coca-Cola at the moment. I did want to have a red wine with you, but um, I just didn't get my shit together in time. (laughs) Oh, no, no. Well, look, I've got uh, no Retti. It's fake beer. So... Here we are. Here we are. A conversation between Lucy Eaton and Maddie Hill. Just a couple of lads, isn't it, mate? Just a couple of lads <laughs> a drinking a Coca-Cola and a no-alcohol beer <laughs> chatting about Shakespeare. I find it really cute that you're having a Coca-Cola, actually. <laughs> it's really well, sweet. Glad. Glad. Is it from a big bottle or did you pour a can? Oh, big bottle. Um, and actually, it is a Diet Coke. Oh, is it? Is that your, always been your preference? Oh, 100%. Honey pee. Honey pee. I love them e-numbers. Yeah. Mm. So, Maddie, you. for those of you who are foolish enough to not know who you are, <laughs> you are best known as fabulous EastEnders Soap Award winner and now star of Casualty. It's true. But what I think, because that is how you made your name, what I think a lot of people don't realise about you is that you are a theatrically trained actress. Darling, I've trodden the boards a few times. So this is the fun thing today, is we're going to chat about not just any old theatre, but the man of theatre, the bard himself, Mr Willie Chacks. Because what you wanted to have a bit of a chitter-chatter about was a speech from Shakespeare's Cymbeline. Yes. I mean, one of his greatest plays. Nah, (laughs) Well, let's start there. (laughs) Cymbeline is not a particularly well-known one. It was apparently quite a late one of his, I think. It's not generally one of the most loved Shakespeare plays. But you, of course, were in 
a production of it that was renamed Imogen at the Globe mm. Theatre in mm. when? 2016? Uh, 2016. It was, it was just after we did Dream Together. It was just after we did A Midsummer Night's Dream together at the Southwark Playhouse. And I have to say, I had seen Cymbeline before and probably agreed with you. I didn't love it. But when I saw Imogen, the version of Cymbeline that you were in, it was flipping awesome. I had the best time. I loved it. I really do feel like it sort of breathed some kind of life into it or it made sense of it. Yeah. What was it like for you? Or why don't you just give us, if you can, the briefest synopsis of Cymbeline. Well, it's very much about Imogen. Mm. Cymbeline is Imogen's dad. It's about, uh, lo and behold, star-crossed lovers. Posthumous is in love with Imogen. Why does mm. Cymbeline not want her near him? Oh, God, I don't know. When, why do they ever... He's got something wrong with... Oh, no, he's like poor or something. The usual. <laughs> not him, he's poor. <laughs> I think I'm almost <laughs> certain that that's what it is. It's not even like... Yeah, not him, he's poor. And then she's got a wicked stepmother who's also like, not him, he's poor. The stepmother Mm. wants her son to get down with Imogen. So the King Cymbeline officially separates Posthumus and Mm. Imogen. And they spend the whole play trying to sort of find each other. And then when they find each other at the end, Posthumus is sort of like fucked her over in multitudinous ways. Oh. <laughs> Everyone's like lied and cheated. And the best thing that Dunster did, though, was change the ending. So just to clarify, Matthew Dunster was the director. Director, and he did the adaptation. He wrote, he, so he re, really rejigged the whole thing. Mm. And I, I am literally re-remembering this from four years ago as we speak, so bear with me. But I've, I thought it would be more interesting that way. He he basically gave a lot of Cymbeline. So Cymbeline comes back into the show, having not mm. really been doing very much at all at the end, mm. and basically gives Posthumus a good going over. But he gave Imogen all of Cymbeline's lines, which made a hell of a lot more sense. Because in the original, she just sort of disappeared for the final third of the play. Right. And so she ends up giving him what for at the end Mm, mm. which made a hell of a lot more sense I think that's why it's a big reason why if a character doesn't have any sort of logical through line you can't invest in them yeah absolutely. and I think the all the major Shakespeare fans who knew the play and thought of it as a bit pants even if they were a little bit sort of old school in their sort of views as to how these plays should be performed and by whom I think they did sort of understand that he'd improved the narrative at least and that he'd developed a character that people could actually invest in as opposed to before, it's so fractious. So yeah, Dunster's a clever guy. So this speech that you think is particularly gorgeous, where are we in the story when that happens? We're right at the beginning, and they've been separated for some time now. And she, it's about the fact that she didn't get to say goodbye to him. I mean, search my memory as to how that happened. <laughs> I like the fact <laughs> I don't remember these things. Come on, it makes it more jazzy. And if you ever see Cymbeline again, you'll be like, what happens? Oh my God, what happens next? <laughs> exactly. So yeah, they've been separated. They've been separated. It's, I just think that imagery is absolutely beautiful. I would have broke my eye strings. Cracked, you know, the... the the strings that hold your eyeballs in place. Mm. Looked for someone so hard that you snapped your 
that is a wild, wild metaphor. Wow. Till the diminution of space had pointed him sharp as my needle. Fucking, he's so small that he's like the end, the pinpoint of a needle. Mm. That is wild. Till he had melted from the smallness of a gnat to air. That is batshit. <laughs> and funnily enough, I don't like, I'm not necessarily, um, I don't know, that romantic as a person. Some things right. just get me imagery wise. When someone, it's it's so important to get a really intense feeling across that you go to those lengths with words and imagery. Mm. That just, that just, I think is wonderful. I'm sure you're about to ask me what I'm about to... Uh, <laughs> what do you think I'm going to ask you? What, uh, probably at some point, what it was like playing it or well, like... obviously, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So before I ask you that, actually, I was about to say, I think... What's amazing hearing you say those images as well is that I haven't heard them before. And I think maybe that's one of the great shames of Shakespeare is he's so fab that we see a lot of his plays so often. And Midsummer Night's Dream is one of those ones where I love it as a play, but I find it really nauseating sometimes when you go to see it and there are jokes or there are lines that audiences laugh at and you think, I don't think you're even laughing at that because you think it's funny it's because you knew that line was coming up and you know it's yeah. a moment you're meant to enjoy as an audience <laughs> yeah. member yeah. and so you're sort of doing a knowing <laughs> I get the yeah. joke you yeah, know and exactly. there's such a sort of performance so pompous, isn't yeah it? to even watching <laughs> Shakespeare nowadays and what's so yeah. gorgeous about this is actually being treated to like you say some of these wildly amazing images when they're brand new yeah, yeah I I've never really absorbed any of those images before, but they're amazing. Oh, that's good. That's really nice, actually. You know, as with anything, if you hear something too much, it mm. totally loses its meaning. Yeah, you're desensitised yeah. to it. Yeah. yeah. So, the question at hand, what was it like playing her? Or what was it like doing this speech? Was there? Do you have a particular memory of a certain performance? I or? really do. Yeah, Aww. it's funny. That's why I thought it was good. No, there, there was a scene after this that I really struggled with and I remember distinctly like a couple of days before we went up just sort of like stomping across the stage being very, very teary trying mm. to get to this bit where she... I think she like wrestles a she wrestles a knife off um, Pisanio, who we had. He also and who is Pisanio uh, for those who don't know, uh, Posthumus's right hand man who becomes Imogen's right hand man, and is very loyal, isn't he? He's like a really very very loyal, lovely character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And but in our version, uh, Matthew turned quite a few of the male parts into female parts, so she was Pisania, mm -hmm. and. I remember distinctly really, really struggling and it being like uh, having to get... Oh, it was very, very fast escalation from really, really sort of chilled, taking on some new information and then turning on someone with a knife. And I remember that being very, very hard. Mm. But this speech, I feel like it was like it was quite contentious. It right. wasn't... There was always a thing where it was like, I just wasn't quite, and I know exactly what it was, only now in retrospect, that I was so, it's, it's the to be or not to be thing. I was so overwhelmed by how beautiful I personally, Maddie, found this speech. Right. That I think every time it was just a little bit like, 
oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Whereas now I feel like if I went back and did it again, I would have to work really hard because I find it really hard not to ide- over-identify with things. If I if I find something really, you know, if, if the imagery of something is really, really beautiful and mm. it provokes uh, an emotional reaction in me, yeah. but that's completely... Uh, useless for the scene maybe not right with the character exactly not right for the character not right for the scene often is the worst thing to do anyway because it's kind of like lazy Mm. and I remember him giving me that note quite a lot during rehearsals just being like because I'd just come off a soap as well he was like you're you all day every day you spend your time having to like burst into tears at the drop of a hat <laughs> and then go again burst into tears is that all the EastEnders was oh yeah pretty much pretty much and I think my character luckily was not a burster into tears which is why I think I managed to play her for two years mm. but um I I can picture myself doing this speech now and that's exactly what it is I think there was just I was just pushing too hard oh, because it was and it was affecting me as I was saying it almost like as if it wasn't just what it was and it wasn't the thoughts coming to her head at the time. Mm. It was more like, listen to this beautiful poem. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, you're going into it thinking, I know that there's a whole speech of beautiful images coming up and you're going to enjoy them, as opposed to, I guess, the character being like, here's an idea and here's an idea. Exactly, Mm. exactly. And I think that kind of trampled that particularly lovely section. Oh, how interesting. And so do you think you, in your words, trampled it? all the way through or by the end of the run had you sort of figured out how to do it yeah that's interesting figured out how to pull yourself I don't feel like I ever really cracked it I think I probably Mm. had days where I got it better than others and that was probably because and this often happens with me if I'm (laughs) if I get a bit sort of bored and I'm just sort of going through the motions and I'm maybe thinking about lunch yeah I can often be a little bit a little bit better because I'm not sort of <laughs> do you know what I mean you're just then letting whatever work you've done before just sort of flow through exactly you, as opposed exactly. to really actively planning what to do next and maybe overthinking yeah. I think it was a bit of a case of that well that's what Anthony Hopkins does apparently so you're in good company clever clever so Mads I know that you have actually revisited this speech already for a globe online thing last year and now obviously revisiting it for me mm-hmm. Do you find it quite moving to come back to it, to read it again? It's a weird feeling, isn't it? Mm. I don't, there's something funny about it, isn't there? It's that you, as you re-speak ev- almost every phrase, every word, <laughs> you're transported physically back to exactly where and how you performed it, and you know what yeah. the temperature was like on your skin, uh, where where you were in the play, what the light was like. Yeah. Um, who you were with, um, yeah, whether you were really hot or really cold. It, it's weird just by reading words. Um, and no, nothing else is quite like that, is it? I guess music. Music can be like that, can't yeah. it? But that's the that's only thing. And actually smells a little bit, but it's, not, it's never that detailed. It's yeah. like when you're leading with actual, you know the exact words that you were speaking in that moment. There's something very, very sort of, totally transportative about that yeah yeah I can totally relate to what you're describing so I have quite an intimate relationship with the Galloper Pace speech from Romeo and Juliet because I played Juliet when I was oh, about 2021 20, and then 
that speech was also my audition speech when I tried for mm. drama schools. So I feel like I spent a lot of time saying those words and under quite stressful mm. circumstances saying those words and trying to perfect it to the best of my ability. And I got asked on the spot to read it in a rehearsal room a couple of years ago. And one of the actors actually came up to me afterwards and said something like, that sounded like someone being reunited with an old friend. Yeah. And I thought, that is bang on. That's exactly what yeah, it is. It, there's yeah. a really palpable, yeah. nostalgic, quite emotional sensation, actually, when you revisit something that, that meant a lot to you and that you, you spent a lot of yeah. time yeah. saying. So on that note, what was your experience of being at the Globe? What, what are those memories that come flooding back? I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of it, though, was just being with a great director and a, a great cast and just doing something that really, really needed doing there, you know, mm. needed shaking up. I mean, there's still this debate as to whether it was really controversial what he did with that play, what we did with that play. Yeah, which seems absurd because it made so much sense. Mm -mm -mm. But in terms of, you know, yeah, it sounds like it was a great production to be in and a great cast company and everything you know was joyful but mm -hmm. what about you know the globe is such a specific entity all of its own that I think is yeah, yeah, from yeah, what yeah. I I've, I've never performed there but from what I hear from people you know it's unlike any other kind of theatre yeah what did you find were like the particular highlights or the hindrances what were the hard things and what were the joys the obvious, most people say, everyone says the hardest thing is sound, obviously, because mm. there's a hole in the top. Um, <laughs> so <you're>... <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it comes down to it's totally luck, though, and it's like voice quality. I was lucky to have been born with this booming voice. <laughs> voice. So I didn't have a lot of the actors were genuinely having trouble reaching the top row. Mm. And I was like, finally, a good excuse to be deafeningly loud to shout yeah but I remember actually very distinctly because we we did it from September into October mm. and we had a real heat wave for the first week or two and then you know how it does that in London I find every year you have another heat wave in September and then it just drops off yes. and it feels suddenly very cold yeah. for a, a week or so in October and that happened I remember going out on stage that day when the temperature dropped and just coming out after the first half I think it must have been when the sun had gone down mm. and just being like, uh, where is my voice? It just wouldn't carry any further. Gosh. So we were all backstage on those mental teapot things, just trying to inhale. Oh, some... like portable steamers for your voice. Yes, yeah. And they have like an emergency voice dude there. So he'll like come in and be there ready if he knows the temperature's going to drop. And he's just got all these kettles ready. So it worked, but I, that was mad. So that, that kind of thing you never have to contend with if you're indoors. And, and just how far away people are on the top row. But you, you have that in normal West End theatres. I think it's like, it's pretty normal to have to project to that kind of height. But also the, obviously, the main thing is the intimacy of having everyone standing at stage level and feeling like they're with mm. you. And for me personally, that was only ever... Oh, just there's something about the those first two or three rows, they they just don't they never looked bored. Mm. They were just you know you know the worst feeling ever is when you're doing a play and you know it's dropped and the energy's gone a bit, but because of the standing 
crowd for some reason they just always felt involved yeah. they can't believe they're so close and they can't believe they're in shared light with you and they can't do you, do you see what I mean I think it's yeah, like absolutely you can't switch off so many people think that going to the theatre is just you know the big theatres is going to see big mm-hmm. West End musicals but I always think the real privilege of being in a city like London and the amazing theatre scene there is all the small stuff. It's the fringe theatres and the rooms above a pub and then the off-West End ones like the Almeida and the Donmar and the Young Vic and all these amazing spaces where you feel so... I love what you said about being in the same light as Mm -hmm. the performers. Um, I remember seeing a show when I'd first moved to London and I saw a show at Trafalgar Studios in the the small space and Indira Varma was in it. And I remember there was a moment I was sat right at the edge of the row of seats right by the wing and there was a moment when she exited the stage and she practically had to like climb over me to get out Mm. and her skirt brushed against my legs. I just loved it. It was so exciting that every time this character entered and exited, yeah. her clothes would like brush over me. It's, yeah, it's just wonderful. Yeah. Do you remember that thing when you? I have this thing as well, hugely. When I was younger and watching plays, and I was just completely sort of entranced. The smell it would always be. You'd like associate if you were particularly beguiled by an actor's performance you'd attribute like a smell to them and to the play oh, and you yeah. only really get mm. that with intimate unless they've actually made an effort to make it that kind of a sensory experience which often they do and the smell of smoke yeah I always yeah. think the smell of cigarette smoke on a stage is totally different from the oh, smell yeah. of cigarette yeah. smoke in normal life like the smell of smoke when it has traveled through a theater from the stage to your seats up in the gods is such a specific entity all of its own yeah can I just say how lovely it is and how it's actually making me quite emotional I haven't spoken to anyone about obviously you have because you've been doing this but I haven't spoken to anyone about live theatre in this kind of detail obviously Mm -hmm. and going into that kind of detail and revisiting senses and stuff is reminds you of what you are bereft of. Yeah, absolutely. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah. I went to a local, I was literally just going to get a coffee during the summer and there were these really sweet ladies, all probably, I reckon, in their like late 50s, early 60s, and they must have a brass band together and they were playing music mm. in the market and I just stopped and I was like, I was kind of taken aback. Mm. I just had like really involuntarily and I'm, again, not this is not in my nature I'm not particularly sort of sentimental or nostalgic Mm. or anything like that I was really shocked and I was like oh my god I suddenly realized I hadn't seen anyone hadn't seen any live music in like six months and I started crying I know I was just like oh it's wild isn't it well look I hope this doesn't make anyone cry but (laughs) is it time to hear your favorite speech you want to hear it yeah I do coming it's like story time i'm not gonna do any this is welcome to story time no please just story time with maddie okay i would have broke mine eye strings cracked them but to look upon him till the diminution of space had pointed him sharp as my needle nay followed him till he had melted from the smallness of a gnat to air 
and then have turned mine eye and wept. I did not take my leave of him, but had most pretty things to say. Ere I could tell him how I would think on him at certain hours, such thoughts and such, or I could make him swear the she's of Italy should not betray mine interest and his honour, or have charged him at the sixth hour of morn, at noon, at midnight, to encounter me with orisons, for then I am in heaven for him, or ere I could give him that parting kiss, which I had set betwixt two charming words, comes in my father, and like the tyrannous breathing of the north, shakes all our buds from growing. I like it a lot. Oh, he's such a clever geese. You know, you have those days where you're just like, oh my God, space is so big, oh my God. Someone actually listing all the smallest things you can possibly conceive of to suggest how much longing you have for someone. Hear Me Out is a Lucy Eaton Productions podcast. Music composed by Tristram Kay and artwork by Rebecca Bright. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe. And I know it's a mini faff, but if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a rating and a review would mean the world. Finally, you can find us on social media at Pod Hear Me Out, and we're on YouTube, where you can catch visual clips of the show. Right, that's it. Lucy Eaton, exiting stage left. Mm-hmm.